Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Will Friedle. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, where communities can be disconnected, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. They believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can help build a more connected community. Neighbor to Neighbor. It takes a neighborhood. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here and welcome to my first podcast episode. I'm actually really excited to get this off the ground because this is something that I've had on my mind to do for a while. So I hope that you'll continue to tune in as we produce more episodes in the near future. Today, I want to talk to you about something that has been on my heart and mind for several years, really, but kind of more specifically in the last couple of months, and that is this whole issue of progressive Christianity. What is progressive Christianity? What do progressive Christians believe, and how do those beliefs interact with and intersect with what I would call traditional Christianity, the things that Christians have affirmed for 2,000 years? But before we get into what progressive Christianity actually is, I want to give you a little backstory as to why this subject is so important to me, why this matters so much to me. I was raised in a Christian home, and it was a very artistic home, a musical home. My dad was a uh, Christian artist who traveled the world during my childhood, and my parents both together modeled a very genuine, simple Christianity for me. I wasn't raised with some sort of extreme left-wing liberalism, and I wasn't raised with some kind of extreme right-wing legalism or fundamentalism. So I'm not reacting against the way that I was brought up. I was brought up with very sincere, real Christianity. It wasn't perfect, but uh, even as a very young child, I had a very sincere love for Jesus and the Bible. I used to read and study the Bible. In fact, I have my Bible from when I was about nine years old, and it's highlighted and tons of notes in the margins. I just loved it. And I I had a deep faith. I can't say that my faith was untested or that it was uh, shallow or blind or surface level, but there was one area of my faith that I didn't realize this till I was an adult, but there was one sort of point of weakness in my faith, and that was the intellectual side of my faith. And that's actually something that I see a lot with people in the church today, is that a lot of Christians are, as I was, really deeply disconnected with the rich intellectualism and um, theological depth that has marked our church history. And I hope to help bring some change in that area. But when this was kind of exposed was a few years ago, I was invited to lead worship at a local church here in town. And 
my husband and I went there and I led worship and we just fell in love with this church. We fell in love with the pastor and with the people and we felt such a kindred spirit with the people that we knew from that church. And so we went there about a year and after about a year, I was invited to be a part of an inner circle type study and discussion group. And it was a very exclusive group. It was a very secretive group. We weren't really supposed to talk outside of the room about the subjects that were discussed inside the room. And it was in this context that the pastor of the church revealed that he was really more of an agnostic. And I remember him once even going through the fundamentals of Christianity and sort of identifying which points he agreed with, which points he thought were just really not that important, and which points he didn't believe at all. And he also put on the intellectual chopping block, per se, every just about every belief that I had about God and about Jesus and the Bible. And it was just like everything that I believed was deconstructed before my eyes. And it really, really shook my faith. And it sent me into what I could only describe as a dark night of the soul where I went through a period of really profound doubt, really for the first time. And so eventually my husband and I left the church and I I was struggling really with not just what I believed about Jesus in the Bible, but even about God's existence at all. And I was even feeling foolish at times for believing in him or for praying. And I really needed some, I needed, I needed help. I needed to find somebody who could explain these things to me and and maybe give me a different perspective. And so that's when I discovered apologetics and I began to study theology and apologetics and church history and uh, just began to really discover this deep and beautiful faith that I have now. And I certainly made uh, corrections along the way. There were things that I realized I had believed that weren't uh, entirely biblical or logical. But when I came out on the other side of it, what I discovered was that the claims that Christianity has made for 2,000 years still stand. The resurrection of Jesus, the virgin birth, the blood atonement of Jesus, the reliability, authority of Scripture. I've studied these things uh, for the last several years deeply and have come out on the other side of this realizing, yeah, there is a really good reason that Christians have claimed these things for the last 2,000 years. And the reason I started with that backstory is because the church that we were at and that we ended up having to leave is now a self-titled progressive Christian community. So I was right in the throes of watching a church head toward progressive Christianity and then ultimately land and stay there. And so what started this off for me uh, in this last couple of months of intense thinking about this is that I wrote a blog post uh, about, I don't know, two or three weeks ago. And it was called Five Signs Your Church Might Be Heading Toward Progressive Christianity. And I expected some pushback on it. I wasn't expecting that this blog post would be loved by all. Uh, and it certainly wasn't. And I think it encouraged a lot of people and it upset a whole lot of people. And in fact, it got the attention of the guys over at Bad Christian Podcast. And Joey from Bad Christian reached out to me and asked if I would come on the show and talk about my article because he 
he had some disagreements with it, some things he didn't really like about it. And so a couple weeks ago, I Skyped in with Joey and we had what I thought was a really great conversation. So I'm really hoping that they'll post that soon. And um, I will let you know if and when they post it. And uh, so be looking out for that. But what I began to realize when I looked at some of the pushback I got on this article is there were all kinds of comments, like people saying that I was building straw men, which is a logical fallacy where you misrepresent your opponent's view and then attack the false view, which is easier to refute than their real view. Uh, so that was one thing I got. There were other comments I got was that I was judging people or that I had uh, fear-based beliefs, things along those lines. But the main uh, thing that I think I got pushed back on was my definition of progressive Christianity, what it actually means to be a progressive Christian. So I thought it would be really great to do a podcast on this because it's really important when we have discussions that we define our terms because I might be saying progressive Christianity and saying all these things, but to you or somebody else, you might have a different definition in your mind of what that is. And then we're arguing past each other rather than getting to the heart of what we really mean. So I'm going to talk through my blog post in just a minute because I really think that is a pretty accurate definition of progressive Christianity. But let's take a step even back from that and take just a look at the word progressive. Uh, According to dictionary.com, this is what the word progressive means. A movement toward a goal or to a further or higher stage, developmental activity, Advancement in general, growth or development, continuous improvement. And so if we think of being progressive in general, I think there are ways we are supposed to be progressive. If we're talking about being progressive, making progress in our faith, growing in maturity, making progress in the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, in our understanding of God's Word, then I would say, yes, we all need to be progressive. Nobody wants a stale or stagnant faith. It's not just a prayer we pray one time and then go about our lives as if nothing happened. We are constantly progressing in our understanding, in our maturity. But what I think and what I'm seeing from the progressive community, and I read the progressive blogs and books and listen to the speakers, and this is what I'm getting from progressive Christians themselves, is that they would say, yes, that's what we mean by progressive, but also that the revelation of God is also progressing, not just our understanding of it, but that the actual revelation of God is progressing. And what they're meaning by that is that Christians in the like Paul and James and Peter and the apostles that walked with Jesus that were eyewitnesses to his life, they had a certain degree of understanding about God and about Jesus, but that was when Christianity was in its infancy. And so as we continue to progress as people, we now have greater insights and deeper understandings about God and Jesus than Paul or James or Peter had. And so they would add that level of progressive to it, that that Christianity itself is progressing. So where I would say I am progressing in my faith, I'm progressing in my ability to understand the timeless and objective truths about who God is, I believe progressive Christians would say 
that those objective truths themselves are progressing. And even in some cases, this is more rare, some progressive Christians would even say that there are aspects of God himself that are uh, changing and evolving, and therefore our understanding of him is changing and evolving along with him. This is called process theology. So this is a really important thing that we need to understand. This is a distinction we have to make. This isn't just two different groups of Christians bickering about theology like we've done since the inception of church history. This has to do with the philosophical assumptions that undergird the beliefs of both progressive Christians and traditional Christians. We're basically arguing from two different worldviews. So here's an example. On social media, uh, the objection I see a lot coming from progressive Christians is they'll say, you know, you're so, you're so upset about progressive Christians, but Martin Luther was the ultimate progressive. He challenged the Catholic Church. But again, when we understand the philosophical assumptions that undergird the beliefs, not just the beliefs themselves, we'll see that Martin Luther was actually not a progressive at all. In fact, he thought the Catholic Church was progressing away from traditional Christianity. He wanted to bring Christianity back to its biblical roots, back to its traditional understanding and definition. He wasn't a progressive at all. In fact, when we look at it this way and we understand the philosophical underpinnings, we'll see that it was actually the Catholic Church that was the progressive Christian in this scenario, and it was Martin Luther that was the traditional Christian. So obviously there are some different beliefs that would fall under the umbrella of progressive Christians, but in this blog post I wrote uh, a few weeks ago, what I think I did, hopefully effectively and accurately, was identify five things that progressive Christians tend to have in common. These are signs that your church might be becoming progressive Christian, or maybe you're even becoming progressive Christian without realizing it if you are kind of find yourself in some of these points. And so how the blog post is set up is there's five points, and then under each point, is a section that says comments you might hear. And the reason I actually chose to put that section in there is because there were so many comments that I heard myself from pastors in the progressive church that I wanted to bring those out so that if you hear something like that, you go, hey, wait a second. And uh, so some of them were quotes from pastors verbatim. Other uh, quotes were directly copied and pasted from progressive blog posts. So I was really careful not to build straw men on that part of the blog post. So let's just talk through these points. So point number one, there is a lowered view of the Bible. Now, one of the most prominent progressive voices is a guy named Brian McLaren. And he said this in his book about the way we read the Bible. He said this, scripture faithfully reveals the evolution of our ancestors' best attempts to communicate their successive best understandings of God. As human capacity grows to conceive of a higher and wiser view of God, each new vision is faithfully preserved in Scripture like fossils in layers of sediment. Now, really grasp what he's saying here. He says, as human capacity grows to conceive of a higher and wiser view of God, then basically the thoughts and feelings of our ancestors are all preserved for us, kind of like a photograph, like a picture. So what he is saying is that we understand more 
about God than Paul did. We understand more now about God than Moses. We understand more about God than Peter or James. And I think this is a really dangerous belief to have, a very scary belief to have, but this is, in my experience, really representative of how progressive Christians read the Bible. My problem with it is that it makes Jesus a liar. And what I mean by that is that when you read the New Testament, you read what Jesus said. There are many times when he called the Old Testament scriptures the word of God. In fact, there were times when he would be talking to someone and he would say, God said to you, and then he would quote an Old Testament prophet. So it's clear to me Jesus didn't think that the Old Testament prophets had some kind of uh, unevolved or inferior view of God. He held their words to be authoritative. And so to say that the Bible is really just our spiritual ancestors' best attempt to to capture what they believed about God at the time, and then it's up to us to kind of go through it and and take a look at it and see what we think about it, is really to make Jesus a liar because he called it the Word of God. And so to hold this view that Brian McLaren and other progressive Christians hold, you basically have to say, I disagree with Jesus, and I'm certainly not going to do that. So let's look at the next point. Feelings are emphasized over facts. Now, if I had to rewrite this post, I might have reworded this point just a little bit because I think it might be more accurate to say feelings become the ultimate authority. Because in my experience with progressive Christians, often you'll hear things like, well, I just don't, I can't believe in a God who such and such. Or, you know, I feel more at peace when I believe this about God. Or I just, I, I just don't feel like that's true. And so in the progressive world, what a person feels to be true becomes the ultimate authority for faith and practice rather than the Bible being the authority for their, their life, God's definitive word. So point number three is essential Christian doctrines are open for reinterpretation. Now, certainly there have been Christians uh, throughout church history who have challenged uh, essential Christian doctrines like the virgin birth or the resurrection of Jesus, the blood atonement of Jesus. But what I'm seeing is that this is really the first time in human history where this view is getting the attention of the mainstream or the mainline church. This isn't just some heretical group off to the side as it would have been in church history. This is actually becoming the dominant view of the church, at least on the internet and social media. So some ideas that might fall under this category would be asking, you know, was Jesus literally raised from the dead? And is that all that important? There was actually a blog post by a progressive Christian children's pastor that was released on Easter. And in this post, she basically suggested that it could be psychologically damaging to teach children that Jesus died for their sins. So we're not talking about Christians nitpicking over whether or not we should be speaking in tongues or laying hands on people or anointing with oil. This is like core essential doctrines that define what Christianity is and makes it unique in the world. And, and it's not about asking questions. And this is, this is something that I think gets misunderstood a lot. It's not that traditional Christians are afraid of asking questions. But sometimes in the progressive world, the question is valued more than the answer. 
Should we be asking questions? Of course, always. God is never afraid of our questions. But if the motivation in asking the question is just to achieve the glory of asking a great question, then I think we're really missing it. Because the purpose of finding and asking a really good question is to find the answer. And some things are mysterious. The Bible doesn't lay it all out for us. But for a lot of things, there are answers. And so if you're asking a question and an answer is available, but you don't want the answer, then to me, that's a little bit dishonest. And I've heard this a lot in progressive circles. They'll say, you know, why are you so afraid of questions? And to that, I want to say, why are you so afraid of answers? G.K. Chesterton said the, the object of opening the mind is to shut it again on something solid, much like opening your mouth. You don't open your mouth and just leave it open to gather and collect everything that might be floating in the air. The point of opening it is to shut it again on something solid, and it's the same with the mind. All right, so point number four, historic terms are redefined. So we talked about essential doctrines being reinterpreted or redefined, but in this one, more specifically, terms are redefined. And so there are certain phrases, doctrines, all throughout church history that have meant a certain thing, like doctrines surrounding the Bible, like inspiration, divine inspiration, a biblical authority, a biblical infallibility. These mean something. And so there are progressive Christians who would say, yeah, I affirm biblical inerrancy. I, I affirm the divine inspiration of the Bible, but what they mean by inerrancy and inspiration is such a different meaning than what most people and historically Christians have understood those words to mean. So they have to change the meaning of the words to be able to use them. And there's a really great book that I just can't recommend highly enough for everybody to go get, go to Amazon and get it. It's called Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. And he wrote this book in the early 1900s, and he was responding to the Christian liberalism that was cropping up in the church. Of course, there was no quote-unquote progressive church back then, but there are a lot of similarities. And as I read through his book, I was actually quite stunned by the similarities. So he kind of addressed this point himself, and this is what he says in his book. The modern liberals, on the other hand, say that Jesus is God, not because they think high of Jesus, but because they think desperately low of God. In order to maintain themselves in the evangelical churches and quiet the fears of their conservative associates, the liberals resort constantly to a double use of language. That's really important. That's what's happening now. And then he goes on to say, the liberal preacher attaches indeed a real meaning to the words, and that meaning is very dear to his heart. He really does believe that, quote, Jesus is God, end quote. But the trouble is that he attaches to the words a different meaning from that which is attached to them by the simple-minded person to whom he is speaking. And I encountered this time and time again in the progressive church. The pastor would say things that he knew what we thought he meant, but he actually meant something else. And this is really just an old liberal trick from the early 20th century that J. Gresham Machen also recognized in his time. All right, the last point on the post is this. The heart of the gospel message shifts from sin and redemption to social justice. And I, I got a lot of pushback on this point, and I think people misunderstood what I was saying. And so I want to be clear. What I'm not saying 
is that Christians shouldn't worry about feeding the poor or taking care of widows or defending the oppressed or standing up for those who are being bullied. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that those things by themselves are not the gospel. The gospel is this. I am a sinner. I need a savior. Jesus came, lived a sinless life, died in my place, was resurrected, reconciling me to God. That's the gospel. And the outworking of our faith, the overflow of putting our trust and our faith in Jesus is that we will want to do these things. We'll want to help the poor and to do good works. But it's it's the overflow of our faith, the outworking of our faith, not the saving part of our faith. And there are progressive Christians who deny that Jesus died for our sins altogether. Uh, in fact, under the comments you might hear section of this particular point, I mention how uh, you might hear that God never actually required the Old Testament Jews to do sacrifices. And, and the Christians, they just picked up on the pagan practices of animal sacrifice and decided to tell the Jesus story in those same terms. And I got that right from Rob Bell. That's what he's teaching. And a common theme that you'll hear from progressive Christians is that the idea that God would will for Jesus to die on the cross is equated with what would be called cosmic child abuse or child sacrifice. And they paint the picture that God is this cold, uncaring, unloving, angry deity off in the corner waiting until somebody sheds blood and then he can forgive sins. But it this, this idea betrays a misunderstanding even of the Trinity. And this is something that J. Gresham Machen was also encountering in the early 20th century when he wrote his book, Christianity and Liberalism, that I quoted from earlier. And I'm going to read to you what he said about the modern liberal teachers that would constantly speak with horror about some kind of doctrine of an angry God that would require blood as the sacrifice for sin. Here's what he says. But as a matter of fact, the modern objection to the doctrine of the atonement on the ground that the doctrine is contrary to the love of God is based upon the most abysmal misunderstanding of the doctrine itself. The modern liberal teachers persist in speaking of the sacrifice of Christ as though it were a sacrifice made by some other, someone other than God. They speak of it as though it meant that God waits coldly until a price is paid to him before he forgives sin. As a matter of fact, it means nothing of the kind. The objection ignores that's that which is absolutely fundamental in the Christian doctrine of the cross. The fundamental thing is that God himself and not another makes the sacrifice for sin. And then he goes on to talk about the doctrine of the cross, and he says, upon the Christian doctrine of the cross, modern liberals are never weary of pouring out vials of hatred and scorn. He says, they speak with disgust of those who believe that the blood of our Lord shed in substitutionary death placates an alienated deity and makes it possible welcome for the returning sinner. Against the doctrine of the cross, they use every weapon of caricature and vilification. Thus, they pour out their scorn upon a thing so holy and so precious that in the presence of it, the Christian heart melts in gratitude too deep for words. It never seems to occur to modern liberals that in deriding the Christian doctrine of the cross, they are trampling on human hearts. And I think he just absolutely nails that on the head, that you can look at the doctrine of the cross and your heart can melt in gratitude or you can accuse God 
of being an angry, cold, uncaring deity. It's just difficult for me to understand how it can be seen that way, but nevertheless, it is by many progressive Christians. All right, so those are my five points. Those are the five things I've observed that uh, progressive Christians tend to have in common. But to be fair, let's go to an actual progressive Christian themselves and see how they define themselves. John Pavlovitz is a popular Christian blogger and author and speaker, very prominent voice in the progressive church. And he wrote a blog post called Explaining Progressive Christianity, and then in parentheses it says, otherwise known as Christianity. I actually kind of like the, the way he's framed that title because I agree with him that really Christianity is only one thing, and any adjective you put in front of it is going to modify it, and it really doesn't need to be modified. It just is one thing. Of course, he and I probably aren't going to agree on what that is. So for lack of a better terms, he puts progressive on there. And here's the way he defines, I actually agree with some things he's written in this post, uh, but I think this is a really interesting paragraph. He says this, progressive Christianity is not about apologizing for what we become as we live this life and openly engage the faith we grew up with. There are no sacred cows, only the relentless sacred search for truth. Tradition, dogma, and doctrine are all fair game because all pass through the hands of flawed humanity. And as such, all are equally vulnerable to the prejudices, fears, and biases of those it touched. So again, he, like Brian McLaren, is putting all of our church fathers, all of the apostles, everybody who's gone before us on the same level. And so really what he's saying is that he doesn't trust the Holy Spirit's ability to speak through the apostles and prophets in an authoritative way as preserved in Scripture. So really, it's an undermining of biblical authority and biblical inspiration. And some progressives argue, well, you know, we've had so many schisms in our history, and everybody's always disagreed about everything, so this really isn't new. But there's a massive problem with that. See, when I say traditional Christianity, I'm not talking about my little brand of Christianity or something that I'm making up right here in 2017. I'm talking about the framework of Christianity, the bare bones of it that's been passed down to us over 2,000 years, the essential doctrines that define what Christianity actually is. I'm not talking about peripheral issues that Christians have argued about uh, over the years. I'm talking about core issues. So what are the core issues? How do we know what they are? Well, we can look to Paul. We can look to the earliest creeds of Christianity. And the earliest creed, arguably the earliest one we have, comes from 1 Corinthians 15. This creed is so early that most scholars date it between three and seven years of Jesus' crucifixion. This, this is a creed that predates the New Testament documents themselves. Paul is, is repeating the creed when he wrote his letter to the Corinthians, but he was repeating a creed that existed from three to seven years after Jesus was crucified. You know what's in that creed? that Jesus died for our sins, so you've got substitutionary atonement there, and that he was resurrected, and that he appeared to all of these people. That I mean, that's the bare bones. And Paul said, this is, this is what's most important. When he relayed that creed, he said, I'm giving you what's of utmost importance. So he said, this is the most important thing. And this is, this is the kind of thing that's under attack in the progressive church, questioning the literal resurrection of Jesus. If the literal resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then Christianity is false. And so 
if you go through a deconstruction of your theology and you reconstruct and come back out on the other side of it and say, you know, I really just don't think Jesus was literally raised from the dead. At that point, we're just not talking about Christianity anymore. At that point, it's something else. It's something new, but it's it's not Christianity. And I do wish that among the more prominent voices in the progressive community, the more influential voices, that there would be a little bit more honesty when it comes to these types of things, that that there is a definition of Christianity that has stood the test of time for 2,000 years. And if you want to change it, then it's just something else. It's something new, but it's not Christianity. So I really hope this was helpful today. If you have been hearing about the progressive church and you don't quite know what it is, I hope this has helped to shed some light on it. And I want to invite you, if you're a progressive Christian and you've listened to this, first of all, thanks for for making it this far. And uh, I want to welcome you to the conversation. If you think I've gotten something wrong or I've mischaracterized something, I'm not trying to divide. I'm not trying to throw a grenade and run. I want to know. Tell me in the comments and let's discuss and uh, welcome you to do that. Well, with that said, I will echo what Peter said in 2 Peter 3. He said, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi. This is Will Friedle. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, where communities can be disconnected, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. They believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can help build a more connected community. Neighbor to neighbor, it takes a neighborhood.